Morning. So yesterday, we covered a lot of ground, and today we're going to cover more, but we're going to go more into what I would consider some of the practical aspects today of, okay, if God is inviting us into more, into an adventure with him, what does that look like? It, because it's one thing, theoretically, to talk about it, but then when you leave here, all of you go back into the matrix, back into your own world, back into the busyness of life. And so what does it look like to step into each day with God actively, intimately? And to show you this, I've got a video that I'm going to play for you that, that I shot of my son. And uh, this was a, a year or so ago. His name is Chase. And on this day, it was summer, I brought him to the office where I work at Ransomed Heart. And it's normally a place where you can have a lot of fun. You can play. We've got ping pong tables and foosball tables and basketball, and we've got people bringing their dogs into the office. So it's, it's a really fun, vibrant environment. And so it was a summer morning, and I just asked him to come with me and said, we'll play most of the day. I'll have a little bit of work. Well, I ended up having a ton of work, and he ended up sitting in my office most of the time by himself. And so what was going to be a fun summer day with a father and a son ended up with me feeling really lousy at the end of that time. And so we got to play a couple of games of foosball, but that was about it. So I'm in my truck, we're in the parking lot, and I was apologizing to him. And um, he just started talking and I felt God say, just pull out your iPhone and capture this. And luckily he was at an age where it didn't, it didn't take him out of what he was saying. He just kept talking and kind of ignored the phone. So. Um, why don't we, can we close these blinds a little? Because I don't, I'm not sure if the light's going to make this one hard to see. But just watch this. It's about a minute. And listen to his words and the conversation. And um, pick up on his son's heart, a child's heart for the father. Let's see. I don't care what we're doing. Okay. What if it's like doing, uh, cleaning out the garbage bin? What if it's um, flying to Mars and killing aliens? What if it's, uh, <laughs> what if it's playing foosball and winning again? Have you fun? So just anything that we do together? Evil loop. Because we're doing it together. Uh -huh. Awesome. Hey, Chase. I love you. See, that's what it's like to walk with God and to go through the day with God. It's really this phrase he said at the very end I don't care what we do as long as we do it together. If you wake up every day, with expectancy, before you get out of bed, literally before you look at your iPhone or before you start thinking about all the things you have to do that day, one of the biggest game changers for me is I wake up and before I, I even lift up, I just say, God, Father, what do you have for me today? Because I don't care what we do as long as we do it together. That sets the tone and the pace for the entire day. That's what walking with God looks like. I, I have a really 
big truck, and I love, I didn't have a truck until I moved to Colorado, and I love it. It's so fun. And everywhere I go, Chase wants to go with me. And the cool thing is, he just wants to be there. So unlike my older two kids, he doesn't ask, where are we going? He doesn't ask, can we get ice cream or can we go stop here where I want to stop on the way home? He just is in for the ride. He doesn't ask me if I have enough money for whatever we're doing. Doesn't ask how long we're going to be gone. Doesn't ask if I know the directions. He's just in. And he'll lift up the console because he wants to sit leg against leg, arm against arm. He is in for the ride. Well, are we that way with God? Or when God invites us into a journey, do we want qualifiers? Are you in for the ride? Well, I don't know, God, where are we going? How long is it going to take? What will it cost me? What if it's not as fun? What if it's hard? What if I get bored? We have a lot of qualifiers. We need to go back to the childlike wonder of, God, if you're saying you're heading out in the truck, I'm in. I'm in. I'm expectant for what's going to happen. I don't need all the details. I just need to know I'm in with you. That's what it looks like in a picture to follow God. Now, if that's the case, what gets in the way? Well, we have an enemy. And the enemy's goal, Scripture says in John 10, 6 through 10, it says his goal is to kill, steal, and destroy us. Not primarily to tempt us with chocolate, desserts. Not primarily to not let us get the parking space we want. He's out to destroy us. We have an enemy. As a publisher of fiction, I worked on over 500 novels. And the number one problem with most novels, beyond if, if the writer could write, once we knew we had a good writer, it was, does the story have a good antagonist? Because the best movies have the best villains. Star Wars isn't Star Wars without Darth Vader. Think of the movies you love, and sometimes the villain is, is like a natural force, a hurricane, or with the Titanic, it's, you know, it's the iceberg, right? But there's always an antagonist, and the reason why that's in the movies that way is because our story has that that way. And Scripture talks about how Satan was one of the most beautiful angels in creation. God creates the angels. We're not angels. We don't become angels. God creates angels, and he creates humans. In the angelic world, Satan was one of the most beautiful angels, it says, talented, gifted, and he turns against God. He sees God face to face. We have to have faith. Angels don't have to have faith. They see. They see God face to face. Somehow, this created being convinces a third of the other angels who see God too to choose him. And the created beings try to kill the creator. Rebellion in heaven. He gets kicked out. He gets defeated. Imagine, though, in here if one out of every three people turned against God. After seeing him face to face, that's what the angels did. The goal of the enemy since then, since being kicked out of heaven, he's lost his story, he's lost everything, and now he's out to kill and destroy our stories. 
And here's the thing. He doesn't really care how your story gets destroyed. He just wants you to be taken out. He just wants you to go away, to be killed, and he'll do it however he can. And the best way he can do it is to numb your heart. That's why when Jesus came in Isaiah, it says, Jesus quotes Isaiah saying, 61, saying, I've come to heal the broken hearts and set the captives free. The enemy is trying to kill, steal, and destroy. I've come to heal the heart, awaken your heart. That's why it says in Scripture, above all else, do what? Guard your heart, nurture your heart. The heart is where the action is. The heart is why God came to heal it. The enemy's out to destroy it. If somebody has given up hope, they've lost heart. Okay? The strikes against you are strategic. We all have scars in our story, meaning we all have wounds. We all have things that were meant to take us out. And if we don't believe we have an enemy, we either blame God or we blame ourselves. Either God let us down or God's holding out, or we're idiots, we've dropped the ball, we've messed up, and so we either turn against ourselves or we turn against God. But it's almost like a novel or a movie where nobody recognizes there's an antagonist. It's like Star Wars going on and Darth Vader's there, but nobody believes he's real and nobody believes he exists, and so they blame all the problems on themselves or on some force out there but they never actually think about Darth Vader being there. We have an enemy, and our scars oftentimes are where he has tried to take us out. Now, this could be betrayal from somebody we trust. It could be silence when we needed support from somebody. A lot of this happens in childhood, but it happens as we grow up. Conditional love based on what we do instead of who we are. All of these things create scar tissue on our hearts. All of these things cause our hearts to start to go numb. Our hearts can be shattered in a million different ways. And what's most under attack during those times? Well, it's our identity and what I would call our points of purpose. Another wise. In other words, what were you born to be? When God thought of you and knit you into existence, what was his idea of you? Who did he see you as before you saw yourself that way? That's what the enemy is out to kill, still, and destroy. And he does it so many different ways. The areas of your life that have been most opposed often hold the clues to your unique calling or talent or dreams. So think back to your childhood, because we live in a story that is not random dots. Our story of life, the capital S story that you're living, isn't random things that happen randomly by coincidence and by luck, and it just all kind of happens together. Your story is as purposeful as any movie that was written about a character that has an arc. Your story that you're living has an arc. If I were to ask you, what are the themes of your story? 
how would you answer? Do you know the themes of your life? Your life has themes to it as much as any movie you see. How you interpret your life is how you will live your life. That's why it's important not to interpret it as, my life has just been all about loss, and I guess I've just made bad choices, or I guess I'm just never going to be able to actually experience my dreams, or I guess I wasn't meant to be fill in the blank. That's an interpretation that's wrong about our life, and the enemy loves it when you go that direction, he's, because he's got your heart at that point. So think about in your story, what are some of the things from childhood on that felt like the biggest blows to you? Words from a coach, verbal abuse, physical abuse, checked out parents, a lack of validation. Um, if you trace that from then to now, oftentimes those early things are the very things that hold your greatest glory. The enemy knows who you could be, and he fears that, and he attacks it. He regularly attacks it. Why is that important? Well, it's important because it's hard to live an epic story if your heart is shut down and numb. God doesn't just invite us into a story um, of external things, meaning it's not just how many times we go to church, how many good things do we do, um, how many times do we say a certain prayer. He invites us into a journey of the heart that is about discovering more of who we are and more of who he is. And it's not always measured in external things. It starts on the inside, on the internal. Again, Jesus said, I came to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. Both of those things start internally. Heart and freedom start on the inside and then play out in the story on the outside. So think about in your life, and maybe in your journal for later, where are the places your life has been most opposed? Now look at those things, maybe with new eyes, as to why. God didn't do that, but he'll use that. He'll redeem those places. I grew up in a family with mostly women and in an industry, ultimately, mostly, I had an all-female staff and I was far more comfortable throughout my life um, just in a, in a group of women and, and being a part of a team or leading a team or in a family gathering. And so when I got asked to join a men's ministry seven years ago, the enemy had stacked the deck pretty good against me feeling very confident and competent in that. Because everything I knew was, well, I just somehow, I just, it's easier to talk to women or it's easier to work with them. And, and then when I'm called to work in a men's ministry and help set men's hearts free, boy, that, I, I didn't feel like I could do that very well. And actually, it's brought all kind of strength into my story by stepping into that. But it was opposed from boyhood in ways that I didn't realize until recently. What in your story has been opposed for who you could be? Your unique calling 
infers that you have a creative gift. I want to give you a new definition of creativity because sometimes people think they're not creative or that that's for the elite or that's for people who get a degree in something. But I just work at a coffee shop or I just uh, work with my hands or I just um, stay at home and, and raise our kids. But creativity, I believe, is when you cause something to come into existence, okay? When you cause something that wasn't there to come into existence and when you change the atmosphere by doing that. So to put those thoughts together, you create when you bring something new into existence and change the atmosphere. And you do that first by your presence. Second, by what you do with your hands or your mind or your, your talent. So when you walk into a room as a son or daughter of God, you change the atmosphere before you say a word. You enter in love instead of in fear when most people operate out of fear. That is a disruptive force that changes the atmosphere of that room before you say a word. Sometimes when you're helping somebody overcome loss, you don't even have to say a word. It's a hug or it's, a, it's just sitting with them. You change the atmosphere by your presence as a son or daughter of God operating out of a freedom realm. In that sense, we're all creative because we all do this. Can a stay-at-home mom change the atmosphere of her home? You bet. Can she be creative in that and bring new things into existence? Absolutely. Can you do that in your office, even if your office has nothing to do with God in the sense that, you know, we're creating this thing and nobody really wants to talk about faith and I can't really, really um, feel like I'm doing much for the kingdom in this job, but it's a paycheck. Can you change the atmosphere there and can you bring new things into existence by who you are? Absolutely. Without a doubt. So that's a definition of creativity that I'd like us to look at. And the thing about this definition is it takes the focus off just something of productivity with what you're given and your gifts and your talents to who you are. God, the very first way he introduces himself in scripture is his what name? It's in Genesis 1. How does he describe himself? As a creator. That's the very first word. Elohim is the word in Hebrew. And he uses it around 30 times in the first few chapters of Genesis. Means he... He is known as the one who creates. And as his sons and daughters, we're co-creators. We have his DNA. We are all creative. Think about God could have introduced himself anyway on that first page of scripture. He could have said, I mean, think about how rulers and dictators are. He could have started off scripture with, let's just get this straight. I'm God. I brought you here. I can take you out. You're going to do it my way or I'm going to destroy you. Any questions? I'm God. He, I mean, he could have. He didn't have to start with the creation story. 
He starts saying, I love beauty. I love life. I love order. I'm going to create mountains, oceans, every kind of animal. I'm going to create things that you won't even know what to do with, maybe sometimes for centuries. I mean, he gave us all the ingredients for all the things we love, and it's like a Easter egg that we get to find. Oh, if I combine this, this, and this, I get chocolate. Wow, if we do this, this, and this, we can create something that flies in the air. He doesn't tell us everything. He creates and then says, now you come along with me and co-create. Discover all these things that I have put into existence. Now you get to find them with me. You get to be my sons and daughters co-creating with me. And he did that primarily so we could get to know him as creator and co-creator. He didn't really give us our gifting so we would get busy and be productive. He gave it to us as a way to know him first. As a way for sons and daughters to discover God as father by pursuing our passions with him, our dreams with him, what we love to do with him. The first way God introduces himself in scripture, as I said, was creator. The second way is father. Are those the two primary ways you know God? Creator and father? The most creative person you'd ever come across is like an ant compared to God's creativity. What do you love to do? God knows far more about that than you. He's far more passionate about that than you. You like to cook? God created all the ingredients that we have to cook with. He can show you all kinds of ways to cook you haven't thought of. You like to create vehicles, cars, repair things? Great. God gave us all the knowledge to do that. You love story? He's the best storyteller. You love music? He created it. We get to step into that with him, not just as a creative being, the creator, but also as our father. It's amazing when we start looking at life and our invitation that way. In my book, The Story of With, I say it this way. God instills a specific talent into each of our DNA, and I believe that acts as a homing device where when we pursue what we love to do, we find God. Because God gave us that love, and then as we pursue it, it woos us more into him because he knows more about it than anybody else. When we pursue what we're good at, that God gave us the gifting of in our own strength, the problem is, if it's all in our strength, it has all of our weaknesses. It has all of our shortcomings, because we're trying to do it in our own strength. And what we breathe into existence without God is always temporal. What we breathe into existence with God is eternal. You want to do something that transcends your life, that transforms others, you have to do it with God. Do it in your own strength, it'll last a little while maybe, and then be forgotten. That's the way God created things to work. A lot of what we're talking about, by the way, is my book, The Story of With, I only brought a few copies, but this whole weekend, we'll touch about 
of what I would love to share with you. And so if you'd like to get a copy before you go, this will go more in depth than this and other things. And I've written it as mostly an allegory. So like if you have children 15, 16, 14, 15, 16, um, you can invite them into it as well because of story. Your gifting isn't primarily so you can do things for God. This was a huge revelation to me as a very driven guy who felt like for years, the more I did, the more I was worth, the more my value came from what I did. But our gifting, our job, our creativity isn't mostly so we can do things for God. That's an orphan-based way of thinking is I'm only as good as what I do. Galatians 3, 11 through 12 says it this way. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. That was one of our scripture readings this morning. Doing things for God. God does not need us to do anything for the world to keep turning. If all of a sudden we were gone today at noon, if a, if a plane just crashed into this building, we would be missed and the world would continue and God's will would continue. He invites us to do things with him so we get to know him more. But it's not about just doing more. I think the primary reason God gives us our gifting is so we can experience it with him. It's like a father and a daughter and the father teaching the daughter to dance. And you've all seen those pictures where the daughter puts her feet on the father's feet, right? And she's, learned, she's two, three, four. She's learning to dance. And the goal of that isn't for the father to teach the daughter how to be a world-class, award-winning, premier dancer. It's intimacy. It's joy. It's laughter. It's doing it together for the sake of relationship and intimacy. When a parent teaches a child how to play catch, it's a great thing because you throw the ball, they catch it, and you have to stay present, and if you're not there or they're not there, catch can't happen. It's relational. And the goal isn't to teach that kid to be a world-class football player. It's relationship. What are you talking about while you're throwing the ball? What goes back and forth in conversation as well as the ball itself going back and forth? Our primary reason God says, here, learn to catch this. Here, learn how to do this with me. Yes, you love it. I gave it to you, so you would love it. I knit that into you. I knit something into each of you differently. Pursue what you love with me. God's offer is always relational first. He shows us how to be more rather than just how to do more. I also want to share with you this quote. When you discover your truest identity, which is what we're diving into this weekend, people and projects lose their power to either validate you, limit you, or define you. I hope you never go into a room anymore with people you don't know and say in the first question, what do you do? Because that's our world shortcut of I'm going to define you by your label of what you do. 
you're a CEO, you're homeless. Well, let me talk a little more to the CEO here about something, because this guy's successful. Oh, you're this? Oh, you're out of a job? Or oh, you're in a new job? Or, like, I went to a um, conference with successful 30-year-olds recently, and it was so cool. We said at the beginning of the conference, nobody knew each other who was coming. The 30-year-olds didn't. And we, as soon as they got there for a weekend, we said, okay, here's the deal. Nobody can say the whole weekend what you do. Not the whole weekend. Everybody is a chimney sweep. That's your job. You can say you hate being a chimney sweep. You can say you love it. You can say you just became a chimney sweep at a new chimney sweep company. But we're not going to get into the posturing of, well, this is what I do. This is who I am. Or the shame of this is what I am not. When the world loses its power, and people do, to validate, limit, or define you is so freeing. That's part of the freedom realm, is you are who God made you to be. The world didn't give you that, so the world can't take that away. If you give somebody the power to validate you, you know you're also giving them the power to invalidate you. A lot of marriages, one spouse gives the partner the power to validate them and invalidate them, and that's so unhealthy. And it's unhealthy in all aspects of life. Only God has the power to name and validate you. Don't give anybody else that power. And when I say up there, your truest identity, let me just give you a quick example of that, okay? When Jesus met the fishermen on the shore, right, and he came up to them when he said, follow me, what he said was, you were fishermen, now I'm going to make you what? Fishers of men. Your identity was a fisherman, but your truer identity, and you only would know what this means if you were a fisherman, is a fisher of men. True identity, yep, they were fishermen. Truer identity. When I told you everything in your life has a reason, has an arc, it's a story, it connects, the dots connect. You may be in this occupation now. I do this. Great. That's true. Now, what's God inviting you into in your truer identity? I recently met an eye doctor, an eye surgeon, and he was telling me, I get paid really well to be an eye surgeon. I studied for it all my life. I went to so much school. And the problem is, all I want to do now is write stories. I want to be a novelist. And I'm trapped. I'm stuck. And I don't even think that's who God made me to be. And it was this fascinating conversation to say, you know what, actually, you are an eye surgeon. And now God's inviting you to give people eyes to see through story. It connects. True, truer. Fishermen, fishers of men. What do you do now that's good and that's part of your story but what do you do now that could lead to a truer version of who you are? You are this, and as you co-create with God, as you step into your dreams with God, actually, the scars that you've had, the dreams that you've had, the jobs that you've done lead up to this, the truer you. It's a really cool thing to think about and to ask God about. And if your answer is, I have no idea, awesome. 
God loves that. Ask him. That's the relationship part of you and God. That's how a daughter or son talks to a father. What am I going to be when I grow up? What do I want to do next? I don't like this, but I feel trapped. That's how you talk to a good father. It's different than a prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us sing of our food. Yeah. Ritual, meaningless words that at one time meant something, and now it's just a da 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 That's different than the pleas in the Psalms that David had to his father. Very raw, very honest. God, I'm frustrated. God, I hate life. God, I don't know what to do. That's how David talked to God. And, God, I love you. I'm dancing. I praise you. Both. We would call somebody like that in this room schizophrenic. And yet, God calls him a man after my own heart. So the scars of your story. As I said, all of us have had scars, wounding things. And I want to show you a new way to look at that. And this is a Japanese word, kintsugi, a Japanese word from a 15th century art form. How many of you are familiar with what this is? Nobody? Awesome. I love this. I love talking about new things. So kintsugi, basically what would happen is in the 15th century, these artisans would take pottery that was broken, a glass, a dish, and instead of throwing it away, like in America, we live in a disposable culture. You drop a, a dish, it breaks, it's in the garbage, right? But in Japan, what they did was they took this liquid gold and they put it in the seams of the cracks and put it back together. And let me show you what it kind of looked like. That's a bowl with kintsugi. It had been broken into three pieces there, and now it has liquid gold that brought it back together. There's a cup, a close-up of a cup with kintsugi on it that pulled it back together. It makes the broken beautiful. And you might say, well, gosh, doesn't it just highlight the scars or the broken places? Like, it's calling attention to the very thing I try to hide all my life. That's exactly the point. It honors what's been broken by basically saying this matters, but now we're going to make the broken places even more valuable, and we're going to let that be the shimmering part. And in Japan, once kintsugi is on an item, that becomes their most valuable dish because it's one of a kind. Anybody can have the plain white dish. Anybody can pretend life is all good and that they have no problems and all their scars are hidden inside. Anybody can do that. But when you allow God to take what's shattered and bring it back together again with his blood, his healing, his kintsugi, then it's okay to show your scars because that's a reflection of God's healing. He didn't cause those broken places, but he has now brought his healing in. In the book, I say it this way. Kintsugi makes what is broken beautiful again. And that's also the focus of Jesus, to heal our shattered hearts and to set us free. That's why the cover of my book 
Uh, if you look at it over there, it's got a bottle, and the bottle has kintsugi because part of the story is it being brought back together. This is uh, just a picture I love of a heart with kintsugi on it. When we share the scars of our story with others, our wounds transform for the kingdom, God's kingdom, into weapons of light. When we can talk about our redemption with God and his rescue in the broken places, in the places that were shattered, that's the power that we have to speak into other people's lives. That's how we bring them from the orphan realm to the freedom realm. There's no reason to keep most of our stories hidden and private. It's not just us and God. I had an interesting conversation the other day with a, a friend about uh, tests. And you know how all these tests measure our personality? So you take the test, strength finders, whatever, and it tells you, here's your strengths, here's your weaknesses, here's who you are. This is, you're an introvert, you're an extrovert, right? You know these tests? How many of you have taken something like that? Okay. And how many of the tests have seemed accurate? Here's the problem with the test, though. These tests can measure our brokenness more than our identity. Am I an introvert because I don't believe I have anything to offer and because I've been living in brokenness and so I shy away and I feel more comfortable by myself? Or am I an introvert because God made me that way? I don't know. It's a great question to ask God. But a test, it's like if you have a broken leg and you go into the doctor and say, I need a test. Is my leg broken? Yep, your leg's broken. Okay, well, then I guess I'm a guy with a broken leg. Ten years later, I'm still wearing the cast. Why? Because the doctor said I had a broken leg and I never went back to get the cast off. Part of our identity that needs healing is living under things that we were never meant to live under. So I'm not saying don't take the test. I'm just saying be sure you think about what the test is really measuring. And does it really measure your identity as a son or daughter or the external things that maybe we've used to cope with life? I used to be a very driven man. The test always told me I was, the one, I was off the charts in drivenness. I'm so glad I didn't go, that's my identity, and I'm going to keep on for the rest of my life until I, until I implode. We are infused with God's healing light for a reason. It's to light some part of the world. It's to change the atmosphere around us in some way. When you don't step into your gifting, you are leaving part of the world darker than it needs to be. When you settle for a job that's just a job that pays the bills and, and yet you have a hunger and a stirring for something more and other and you just rationalize away why that's not possible you leave a part of the world darker than it needs to be. Well, I don't know how I'm going to get there. I can't do what I love to do because I can't afford it. Okay, well, that's great. Bring it to God. Talk to God like David talked to God in the Psalms. God, I'm ticked off. You gave me this desire. How am I supposed to do it? I don't know what to do. But I want to do it. 
and I'll step out if you'll show me how. God loves it when we talk to him that way, honestly, rawly. He doesn't want our King James language. He doesn't want some hallmark moment with us all the time. He wants our heart. He can handle your emotions. He can handle your frustration. God, I want to do this. I don't know how to do it. Great, great starting point. Now, wake up with expectancy each day, watching for how God's going to open those doors. It may look totally different than you think. It may look totally different than you think. That's okay. That's from, you know, we talked yesterday about releasing control. Let go of control. It doesn't have to look how you think. But, but invite God to take you into your desires and dreams. So my last question, just to write down in the journal, you can talk with God more about this later. What part of the atmosphere were you born to change? And, it's not up on the, on the board up there, are you doing it yet? You can start when you're 80. You can start when you're 20. You can start right now. It's not too late. The great thing about having God as a father is he created time. Time doesn't intimidate God. God created it. You've got all the time in the world with God to do what he's given you the desire to do. If you don't do it, that's not God, that's you. If you don't step out into something fantastical, you'll never experience the fantastical. We don't experience the fantastical on our couch watching TV. Watching, you know, that's the funny thing about TV. We watch reality shows and all these shows about other people doing fantastical things because it's interesting. And if somebody turned the camera back on us and said, now the show is you, you'd be like, well, that's kind of boring. It's a dude sitting on a couch watching a show about somebody else's life. Right, you step into your reality. Quit watching other people's reality. Start living your dream and your reality with God. Let other people make a TV show about you. Let other people tell bedtime stories 200 years from now about your life because you stepped out with God in a way where the impossible became possible. If you don't step out, you'll never know. You have to step out, and he will not give you guarantees or answers on the front end. That's the kintsugi I was talking about on the bottle, um, and that's kind of the cornerstone of of part of the book. But guys, I just, I'm ending here and we're going to break into small groups, but I just want to invite you with an awakened heart to step into bigger dreams. If you don't, you'll never know. And man, you don't want to be on your deathbed thinking, I should have done, I should have tried, like, I, I, I could I should have tried. I wish I had tried. What you want to do is step into that now. Let God father you. He's got a big truck. He knows where he's going. You're invited to sit right next to him. He'll take care of the details if he's invited you into it. I'm not saying go off into something crazy and then ask God to rescue you. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm not saying go do something stupid and ridiculous. I'm not saying go to Vegas and bet all your money on a slot machine. What I'm saying is when God stirs something in you, when he's given you the gift, step into that with him. That's not stupid. That's the only way to really experience God in life. 
So let me close this in prayer real quick on this. Father, I, I do ask you to just in every man and woman here, stir in them a sense of wonder, of expectancy, of belief that you are the God of the miraculous, that you are also the God of intimacy, that in our lives you bring the miraculous and the intimacy together as creator and father. Help us look to you for the desires of our heart, what makes us come alive, and then let us step into that with you, with you, with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.